0: Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. That's right, it's time for a World War II episode. If you're a history aficionado or just a casual observer, there's a good chance that you recognize this speech. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire. That's Japan. That's President Franklin Delano Roosevelt in a speech a day after the Pearl Harbor attack. This is the moment the United States enters World War II against the Axis powers. Most troops are stationed in Europe to fight the Nazis on that front. In the Pacific, the U.S. has left a skeleton crew fighting for control of Guam, Midway, and even Western Alaska. But there are only a small number of troops protecting the Philippines and its 17 million inhabitants, who are all U.S. nationals. In practice, this means the American war machine has abandoned millions of American civilians to the mercy of the invading Japanese forces. Today, we're headed into a World War II wormhole with Daniel Imavar. He's a history professor and the author of How to Hide an Empire, a book about the little-known history of American expansion.
1: What everyone presumes is that they know the shape of the United States, that it's that sort of familiar contiguous blob with... Canada on the north, and Mexico in the south, and oceans on either side. And what my book presumes is, what if those aren't the borders?
0: Today, Imrevar is talking about the hidden side of the Pacific War and the other Pearl Harbor, the attack that was erased from presidential speeches and our collective memory. It's a dark and fascinating chapter in U.S. history. We'll get into how and why it's been overlooked. That's after the break. And we're back. Let's jump in. So, tell me about Pearl
1: Harbor. Yeah, let's talk about Pearl Harbor. So, what do you think happened on Pearl Harbor?
0: I mean, naturally, I think of the movie, right?
1: Like naturally, because oh, yeah. like I, I, you know, I'm a classic
0: millennial, child of the child of the '90s and early 2000s. Like, okay, so we're
1: just—it's like wall-to-wall hunks in that movie. Yeah, right.
0: The, I mean, the, the the filmmaking. Ugh. Yeah, delicious. But yeah, no, I mean, it's I. I I know the basics, which is like there was an attack, and uh, it seemed seemingly FDR took it very seriously, and this was uh, a turning
1: point in America defining its enemies in World War II. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So, it's an attack. It's an attack that draws the United States into World War II. FDR gives a speech, the date which will live in infamy speech. And the other part that I would add is that this is the only attack on U.S. soil. Right. I think it was, I think I recall it
0: being taught to me as like the first attack on US, something like that. Because like, I remember on 9-11 people were
1: like, this is the next one. Exactly, yeah. right. Not since 1941, a day no hunks yeah. would die. Right, exactly. So, um, okay, that turns, so that's how I learned it too. And and that's, you know, I probably how I taught it. Uh, and, and it turns out that that's missing a huge thing. So, okay. Here's what also happens. So the Japanese do attack the United States at Pearl Harbor, which is a naval base uh, in the territory of Hawaii. But that is part of a much larger attack where the Japanese also attack the US island, Wake Island, uh, which is, doesn't have an indigenous population, but actually does have a lot of civilian and military personnel working there. Japan also attacks Guam, which does have an indigenous population. Uh, and it attacks the Philippines, which is the single largest overseas territory that the United States had ever held. It's absolutely massive. And also, uh, Japan attacked Malaya and Hong Kong, which are British colonies, and the independent kingdom of Thailand. And all of this is part of a kind of sweep the leg out of the Anglophone empire's attempt of Japan to just suddenly, you know, in a kind of Pacific blitzkrieg, just seize all of these colonies. Do you remember after September 11th that we didn't know what to call it? Do you know, like, right after it? Like, like September 12th. Like, we weren't calling it oh, September yeah. like then. We were just like, what happened? People were still in shock. I mean, I, I remember that pretty clearly, but it seemed like pretty quickly people settled on just the date. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes, shock, emotions, all that kind of stuff. But there's also this, like, nomenclatural confusion. What's the main deal here, right? Is the main story uh, the World Trade Center? Is the main story the Pentagon? Is the main story right. that there was a plan heading for the Capitol, right? Which it turns out, th- that's not how we narrate it anymore. Like, those things are not a huge part of it and it's really a world trade center event and even still we we kind of came up with a name for it which is like such a punt of a name like we're just going to call it the day where it happened <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, you know um anyway pearl harbor's like that so we call it pearl harbor but no one called it pearl harbor the day of no one called it pearl harbor the next day and people also d- didn't know how to describe it and and partly because there were multiple sites so um Newspapers, newspaper editors are, you know, headlining it with like, you know, Japan attacks Hawaii and Guam. Japan attacks the Philippines and Hawaii. It wasn't exactly clear where to put the center of it, and um, the military damage done to Hawaii was, uh, or done to at Pearl Harbor, uh, done to the U.S. military was enormous. But that's also true of the attacks on the Philippines, um, where I mean, the U.S. Army's official history rates the attacks on the Philippines uh, within those single hours of attack as militarily damaging as on Hawaii. Um, so there's a real question of what to call it. No one's calling it Pearl Harbor at first. Uh, and Roosevelt has to kind of answer that question. In fact, he has to answer that question in his date, which will live in infamy speech. The original draft of that speech, which is produced by his trusted undersecretary of state, Sumner Wells, says, you know, in the main sense, describing what happened, that this is an attack on Hawaii and the Philippines. And then he crosses out the Philippines and he makes the speech all about Hawaii which is how we remember it. Do we know why? Kind of. Okay, so there's no moment where FDR explains it, um, but I have an extremely confident guess. There are opinion polls of FDR's intended audience for this speech where people are asked if they would support a U.S. military defense of, and various places are named, and the far western territories of the United States, the Philippines and Guam, poll very poorly. And it is... Seems quite likely, almost certain, that the reason for this is that people in the mainland United States do not, by and large, think of Filipinos as fellow Americans. They think of them as foreigners and possibly confusing or burdensome foreigners. Hawaii is different. has a significantly larger white population. It's also closer to the U.S. mainland. So my guess is that with all of these targets, FDR is very nervous that he's going to say Japan, the Empire of Japan attacked the United States of America. That's what he says in his speech. And then his audience is going to think, Philippines? Uh, It's not the United States of America. Uh, We can let this one go. Like, you know, uh, it's not huge. It's funny, because like, obviously that
0: implies the intended audience, right? Like that, (laughs) even though all of these people are going to hear the speech, everybody in the Philippines is also going to hear this speech.
1: Whoa, yeah, yeah, exactly. So when they get the speech reported, they're extremely nervous. They're like, what the hell? is This speech is all about Hawaii. It makes it sound like, like the Philippines is just some weird distant place where... So the Philippines does appear in the this speech. There's a little notice back section where FDR just kind of briefly mentions all the other targets. But it's a unmixed list where the British territories and Thailand and the U.S. territories are all mixed together. You don't know which of them are U.S. territories or not. The focus is really on Hawaii. And right at the end, he makes a final edit where it's, he's going to talk about the Hawaiian island of Oahu as the place where it happens. And he, he changes it to the American island of Oahu just to like really make sure... That his audience gets, that Hawaii really has to count in their minds as the United States; otherwise, the whole speech fails.
0: Well, I mean, rhetoric is powerful. I remember my my high school teacher saying this, and I see, I see why. Um, okay, so like, let's back up a bit. We should, I think, we should probably briefly cover the history of how
1: the Philippines became an American territory. So, the Philippines and Cuba and Guam and Puerto Rico had all been Spanish colonies, and uh, in the 1890s, Spain is facing a colonial crisis, which is expressing itself in um, anti-colonial warfare, and Spain is ba- basically just barely holding on to its colonies. The United States, sensing Spanish weakness, uh, enters the fray. And the idea is that the United States is going to be on the side of the rebels, and it's going to be on the side of national liberation. So at the end of this war is at least the vibe that um, Cuba and the Philippines and Puerto Rico and Guam uh, you know, will be independent. Uh, but that's not what happens. Instead, the United States ends the war and then basically becomes a successor empire to Spain. So it takes the Philippines, takes Puerto Rico, occupies but doesn't annex Cuba, and then takes Guam while it's at it. Then there's a huge war in the Philippines, a war that, depending on how you count, um, lasts about 14 years, uh, where it's a war of national liberation. The Filipinos just, I mean, or many of them, just continue to fight no longer fighting against the Spanish, now they're fighting against the United States. And it is an extraordinarily bloody war. If you just tally up all the kind of war-caused deaths, uh, we think it killed more people than the U.S. Civil War. Right. And then 1941. Yeah, then nothing (laughs) happens in between. Yeah, nothing happens in between. Exactly.
0: Exactly. No, but I I guess uh, there's an uneasy peace, and then the Philippines are attacked again by Japan. Okay, so now let's talk about what happens
1: after that December. The attack that we know is Pearl Harbor, right? So Japan attacks at Pearl Harbor. That's what the Japanese do. They attack, they do great damage, and then, you know, that's it. Uh, In the Philippines, the Japanese attack, do great damage. They attack again. They keep attacking, uh, and they invade, and then they occupy the Philippines. So that for the bulk of World War II— the Philippines is Japanese-held during the war. Uh, the Japanese also take Guam, they take Wake Island, uh, they take the western tip of Alaska. We don't usually talk about that, so that's like Japanese territory for for a, a good bit of World War II. Uh, and by all accounts, the Japanese occupations, including the ones in the Philippines, in the one in the Philippines, uh, are absolutely brutal. And and Japan is um, basically trying to feed whatever of the it can of the Philippine economy into the Japanese war machine as it. Prepares to sort of fend off the United States, and so these are very dark days in the Philippines.
0: To pull back a bit, I'm curious about the, the like heartland attitude towards
1: U.S. colonies at this time. Like, were people really were people aware? Kind of. So I, you're you're not going to like the answer, but maybe you won't be too shocked by the answer. So okay, so all this is unfolding in the Philippines, and I mean, you know, technically these people are still U.S. nationals, and there are. Accounts and in fact Hollywood movies, including starring John Wayne, about what's going on in the Philippines. However, those movies are monomaniacally obsessed with the white people who'd been stranded in the Philippines. So there's some nurses, and there have been some, you know, U.S. militaries from the from the mainland. There's actually a movie called They Were Expendable, which I mean, I'm just like, wow, that would be a great title to describe the mainland attitude toward the Philippines, but it is about the white soldiers and sailors who were in the Philippines. They were the ones who were expendable. They were expendable is a powerful document of fact, more thrilling than any fiction, filmed with the cooperation of the United States Navy. At
0: this point, U.S. propaganda is ramping up and American factories are roaring. However, we're only midway through the war. When we come back, the U.S. endgame begins. What does it mean for America to liberate the Philippines? And what happens when U.S. soldiers and Filipinos meet for the first time in years? See you on the other side of these ads.
1: Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. No.
0: So the U.S. strategically retreats from the Pacific at the beginning of the war. Japan invades and begins a brutal regime. The Japanese military marches Filipino soldiers to their deaths, engages in house-to-house combat, and sucks natural resources out of the country. Over half a million people die in the Philippines over the course of the war. But the U.S. government
1: hasn't completely forgotten about its former territory. So the Philippines does ping on people's radar, but it pings in a very racially specific way. And that has a lot to do with what's about to happen next. United States, depending on what word you want to use, either liberates or reconquers the Philippines because the United States takes the Philippines back from Japan. And uh, the first thing it does is it, you know, as it approaches Manila, which is where a lot of this fighting is going to go down, is it bombs the city. The United States bombs its own city to take out Japanese targets. Um, and then, you know, after a, a light bombing, it, um, it sends in divisions on the ground. And at first, they try the kind of artisanal strategy. The Japanese are completely fortified in Manoa. And at first, the U.S. Army tries to kind of, you know, one by one sort of, you know, enter buildings and get in firefights and, and, and take out enemy emplacements. Um, but pretty soon it becomes clear that the cost to mainland lives of this strategy is is going to be considerable. And so they shift to a new strategy, which is any building in Manila, which is at this point, like the sixth largest city in the United States It's larger than DC and larger than San Francisco. Uh, any building that has suspected might have Japanese people in is just going to get shelled is just going to get taken to the ground. This tactic uh, has an enormous cost in um, Filipino lives. so uh, and it's actually quite successful in protecting mainland lives. so the in in the like month where Manila is just brought to the grounds this un, sort of speakably bloody month of fighting, about a thousand um, uniforms mainlanders die, um, which is pretty impressive given how many people are dying in the moment. but it's more like a hundred thousand Filipinos die. Holy shit yeah.
0: So, okay, so the Philippine government, what's going on there?
1: Yeah, so top Filipino officials um, just keep cajoling anyone that they can get to, you know, military brass, Roosevelt, whatever, to come in and to swiftly rescue the Philippines on the grounds that this is a part of the United States, as integral to the country as New York is, uh, and yet the United States has largely left it undefended uh, going into the war and doesn't seem to be particularly occupied with defending it during the war. There's, There's a really... Vivid and expressive moment where Manuel Quezon, who's the president, the elected president, Filipino elected president, where he's watching Japan take over the Philippine archipelago. uh, And he is desperate for defense, desperate for military defense. The United States should come to the defense of the Philippines because the Philippines is part of the United States. Uh, And he hears FDR because they can hear the radio broadcast, too, talking about the vital need to defend England. And just, I mean, imagine this from a Filipino perspective because you think not only is England not part of the United States, but actually England is an imperial power, part of the problem. And the United States is rushing to the defense of England and saying nothing about the vital need to, or saying very little about the need to defend the Philippines. And in fact, doing extremely little to defend the Philippines is just kind of leaving us here to be taken over by the Japanese, offered up as a kind of sacrifice zone. And there's a moment, Kazan gives a kind of soliloquy that is recorded um, by a U.S. military officer, so that's how we have it, where he he says this in really vivid terms. Now I'm just quoting, I cannot stand this constant reference to England, to Europe. I am here and my people are here under the heels of a conqueror. How typically American to writhe in anguish at the fate of a distant cousin while a daughter is being raped in the back room. I mean, that's a heavy thing to say. And But that phrase, the back room... That's not wrong as a description of where the overseas territories fit within the wider political calculations of Washington. Whew, that's wild.
0: I, I'm just wondering like how, how American soldiers interacted with the people on the ground in, in the
1: Philippines at this time. I so I, I was trying to, you know, be able to tell this story and and I found one really great source was war diaries. I found one that was from a guy who was a Filipino guy who was a uh, pretty much a boy during the destruction of Manila. And he is kind of amazing moment where he, he describes, you know, in the aftermath of this immensely destructive event, he describes meeting um, a GI and, you know, the GI is like handing out chocolate and cigarettes and he gives the boy some chocolate. The boy's name is Oscar. He gives Oscar some chocolate. And Oscar says, thank you. And the GI is kind of startled and and says, uh, whoa, how do you? How do you speak English? And Oscar is then himself startled. And he's like, oh, well, uh, after you guys colonized us, you sent a bunch of school teachers over. And that was enough to set the language of instruction in Philippine schools to um, English. So, in fact, you know, my school was was in the English language. And the GI is yet again startled. And then he says, we colonized you? And, you know, when he's recording this later... And reflecting on this, the, you know, now grown Oscar says, I can't believe this. How did he not know? This is absolutely astonishing. And, you know, when I read that story, I was, you know, I guess surprised and not surprised. But but I, I was like, wow, that is amazing. I mean, this guy's like, not just like accidentally ended up in the Philippines, like on some weird honeymoon. Like, it was an important moment for him in his life. Like, he might die there. Like, he had to, he had to go there on a boat. He had to think about what that would be like. And at no point did it dawn on him that he's on U.S. soil. He thinks he's invading a foreign country. And I actually looked at the guides that are given to service members uh, on their way over to the Philippines. And they're told, like, yeah, you'll meet the Filipinos. They're super friendly. some speak English. But at no point is it explained why they speak English. (laughs) Like, really, at no point in this, it's the Philippines described as in any way part of the United States. Um, And that kind of confusion, I think, is is rife in the media at the time, and it's certainly in the official documents. It's remarkable. I feel like it's always good to be confronted with examples of how the US is
0: an ongoing colonial project. So tell me how the war ends. Tell me how like, focus has shifted toward the Pacific theater.
1: Yeah, so it's funny, we think of World War II, if you're in the US mainland, and you got a, the kind of you know, education that I and a lot of other people got, you tend to think of World War II as a European thing mainly, right? You understand it happened in the Pacific too. In fact, that's where Pearl Harbor was, but it's mainly a fight against Hitler. The Pacific story is a lot harder to get a clean moral out of because Japan is taking over territories, but those territories are colonial territories. They, they are already occupied by a colonial power. So it's just switching of one colonial power from another. And and what is the principle upon which Japan and Britain and France are, you know, uh, might be fighting? It's to recolonize their own colonies. For the United States, the war starts in the Pacific. Uh, It ends in the Pacific. And if you look at U.S. lives lost, uh, if you count Filipinos as U.S. lives, which I think you have every reason you should, uh, the U.S. loses far more lives in the Pacific theater than in the European theater. How does the war end? It ends with, well, you know, it ends with the firebombing and and eventually atomic bombing of Japan. Um, But it also ends with the Allies seizing back their colonies. Um, The Philippines had been on a kind of long countdown to independence and it, it is ultimately allowed to go free. July 4th, 1946 is the date of Philippine independence.
0: So in a mainland sense, mission accomplished? I mean, if we zoom out, the US did defeat Nazi Germany with help and a brutal Japanese empire. But I'd like to go back to Imavar's point about World War II being considered a European war. In a lot of popular media, the Second World War focuses on the D-Day landing and defeating Hitler. If you think about the Pacific theater, Pearl Harbor and the atomic bombs probably come to mind. There's also aircraft carrier battles, kamikaze attacks, and hand-to-hand combat in the jungles. None of that is wrong, per se. On its face, a lot of what mainland Americans learn about World War II is correct. But huge parts of the war are also omitted or drastically reframed. We just talked about the destruction in the Philippines. But Japan also invaded Guam and Alaska. Those places are still part of the United States. Roosevelt's speech really sticks with me because it shows just how important rhetorical choices can be. FDR made a strategic calculation to focus on Pearl Harbor as American land that had been attacked. We're all about overlooked history here at Eclipsed but I think this is a good reminder about thinking critically. When you hear a speech or see a big news story, remember that the footnotes are just as important as the headline. Special thanks to Daniel Imavar for sharing his knowledge on American imperialism. If you want to learn more about the ongoing U.S. colonial project, check out his book, How to Hide an Empire, A History of the Greater United States. We're off next week, but we'll be back in March with a story set in California starring a very tiny monster. Eclipse is a production of Campside Media. It's hosted by me, Bijan Steven, and written by Michael Canyon-Meyer. We're produced by Lane Gerbig and Joe Hawthorne. Archival research by Caitlin Rathie. We're fact-checked by Alex Yablon. Our production assistant is Allison Haney. Our engineer is Garrett Tiedemann. Our theme song is by Doug Slaywin. Our executive producers are me, Bijan Steven, and Michael Canyon-Meyer. The executive producers at Campside Media are Matt Scheer, Adam Hoff, Josh Dean, and Vanessa Gregoriadis. If you want to say hello or what's up, drop us a line at eclipsed at campsidemedia.com. Or tweet at us, at EclipsedPod. And if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me, at Steven on Twitter and Twitch. On Instagram, I'm Cakes. We also have a phone number. Leave us a message, pitch us a story, or tell us your nightmares. Give us a call at 949-490-2127. You might be featured on an upcoming episode. Thanks for listening. See you next time.